but it's been a great blessing to serve all of you uh, in the capacity as your intern, and it's going to be hopefully a blessing to you this morning as I preach from Hebrews 1 and another verse out of 2. So give attention as I read the word of God from the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But we see him, this is 2.9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would empower the preaching this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So we're looking this morning, as we uh, confessed earlier, in the definition of Chalcedon, which, and I hope you've enjoyed some of the things that have been added to the liturgy, as Dave said, in, in terms of some of the historic and reformed creeds and confessions that we've confessed in, uh, in, in over the last several months. It's been a pleasure to see that part of the liturgy uh, come to fruition, and I hope it's been enriching for you. But what we confess today was really, con uh, it contains what we need to know about the incarnation of Christ. Who is the God-man? As it was asked so many years ago by folks like Anselm of Canterbury in the medieval times, who is the God-man? Why did God become a man? We tend to think about Christmas particularly in terms of the birth narrative, but the author of Hebrews this morning invites us to consider much more than that. Birth is what happens from Mary and Joseph's perspective. A virgin birth, to be sure. And that's one of the many miraculous aspects of what it is that we celebrate, that we observe on December the 25th. And it has to be recognized that it is a virgin birth, to be sure, because of a very important reason. Because of Adam's first sin, all of those who, as our confession says, proceed from him by ordinary generation, in other words, anybody who's born the way that a normal person is born, they inherit the same, we all inherit Adam's sin nature by virtue of that very fact. Because of Christ's divine conception, however, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the same cannot be said of him. That's one of the many mysteries that we examine during this Advent period. But the incarnation of the divine second person of the Trinity is really what the Bible is describing to us in the two passages that we just read. Hebrews 1 and 2 in particular were very instrumental in formulating the church's doctrine of the incarnation, the one that we confessed earlier when we read the Creed of Chalcedon. It's referred to by the church fathers many times in formulating that particular doctrine and in defending exactly what we confessed earlier in that creed, which is the necessity of the two natures of Christ, that he is truly divine and that he is truly human. 
And it's very curious that the writer of this letter to the Hebrew Christians decides to open his exhortation to them with this particular fact. We don't know who the author is, other than that he was likely a pastor figure to the people that he was writing to. He's writing to recent converts to Christianity from Judaism who have been encountering lots of trouble because of the confession of their faith. Some of them have been disowned from their families. Some of them have been thrown out of their synagogues. Many have lost their jobs. They are no longer able to participate in polite society because of their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord over all. It was not legal or socially acceptable to be a confessing Christian, and the purpose of the author's writing to them is to show them the importance of pressing on in their faith and showing them that there's nothing worth going back to. There's no reason to renounce their confession of Christ as Lord over all because the supremacy of Christ over anything else is more than what they would ever be tempted to go back to. That's what Hebrews is about. And we can locate ourselves in this narrative somewhat, not because we're under threat of losing our jobs or from being disowned from our families because they find out that we worship Christ and the triune God, but you can certainly relate to the idea of external cultural pressures, perhaps from the outside, tempting and trying to coerce you into hedging on your confession as Christ, over, Christ as Lord over all things, including your own life. And I'm not just talking about, you know, third rail, controversial, cultural issues either. Maybe, perhaps, you are tempted to retain control over your own life in some aspect because of something you're going through. You don't want to turn your finances over to the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't want to trust that Jesus has your best interest in mind when it comes to that ailment that you're dealing with. Maybe that sin that you thought that you had dealt with and mortified so long ago has reared its ugly head one more time in a particularly ugly way. Maybe you're trying to keep it secret from your friends and family or something like that. Maybe you are finding it in this season particularly hard to love your enemies. Maybe you're finding it uh, that you're watching the news too much or something and you're becoming depressed. Maybe something about your career is causing you fear. Maybe you're about to go off to college like some of our young people and you fear that your faith will be mocked by some professor. Maybe the devil is using these things to try to distract you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The message of the author to the Hebrews this morning is a message to you, friends, that there is an eternal Christ crowned with glory and honor, who walked the earth, and because of his work, as the light of the world, he can bring light into all the dark places that you harbor, and he will light the path that leads in his direction if you remain on that path. That's why he gives us, that's why the author of this letter gives us this grandiose overture right at the very beginning. He doesn't even take time like Paul often does in his letters to issue a standard greeting. Hey, I'm over here. These guys are with me. He doesn't go through any of that. He just goes through, he doesn't talk about the litany of the grievances or the suffering that they're going through. He just wants to envelop you in the glorious magnitude of God so that he can say whatever it is that you're tempted to worship, whatever it is that's distracting you in the Christian life, Jesus is greater than all of those things. 
he gets immediately to the heart of the matter. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Wow. He wants you to know one fact before he goes on to say the rest of what it is that he has to say. That's that Jesus is everything. He doesn't waste any time. He doesn't try to prove his statement. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't qualify. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, he merely declares it. Jesus is everything. And whatever hope there is out there for you, it's located in the greatest revelation that God has ever given to mankind in the person of his only son, Jesus Christ. He wants to overwhelm you with the reality of God that is in Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Let's look at some of the language. So the first statement that he makes is a historical one. One of the great privileges that the Israelites enjoyed long ago was that God spoke to them in words and deeds specifically in a way that he didn't speak to other nations. That was by God's grace alone seeing that after Adam's fall into sin, he had really no obligation to continue speaking to the man, to mankind who had rejected him. John Owen mentions it like this. He says that out of infinite, it was out of infinite love, mercy, and compassion that God would at all reveal his mind and his will unto sinners. Death was the expressed penalty for sin. But in his grace and mercy, in his kindness, he delayed the execution of that penalty and instead revealed himself. He revealed himself to Noah. He revealed himself to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to the prophets, giving them his revelation in bits and pieces, as we mentioned. He parted the waters of the Red Sea so that they could escape the Egyptians. He thunders from Mount Sinai as he gives forth the law. He showed himself to Moses on the mountain with the exception that you cannot look directly at me because of sin and live. He answered Elijah by fire hundreds of years later when Elijah cried out on Mount Carmel, God, answer me by fire so that they will know that there is a God in Israel. I did it. And he gave them the law so that they could live in covenant with him. And many of them realized that none of them could keep it perfectly. After all, they had to continue bringing sacrifices, did they not? Year after year, the Day of Atonement comes, and we have to do this, this thing again. What does it mean? What does it all mean? But he doesn't let his people languish on the vine without the revelation that he has to offer them. He continues to reveal himself. And here the author wants to show us, as it says, in these last days that God has given us all the revelation that he can possibly give. In other words, he has nothing more to say to you, friends, because there is no better revelation to give than what he's given in Jesus Christ, in whom all of his promises are yes and amen. He's showed himself to us in a way that makes us more privileged than Moses, than Elijah, than David, because he's revealed himself fully in a way that's superior to everything that's come before. Jesus Christ is the rest of the story. 
God knew that as long as he was speaking through shadows, through types, through bits and pieces, that the revelation could never be complete. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament isn't every bit as much God's word as the New Testament is. It just means that it's, it's fragmentary. It's not the whole story. And, but it's the truth that we observe on Christmas that just at the right time, the eternal son from eternity past came, took on human flesh, and that all of the majesty and all of the wonder and the power to save and forgive sin and love humanity is on display in Jesus he is the key to that puzzle. He is the solution to the sin problem. He is the one that connects heaven and earth and all of time and space. It's all located in this person. So it's a great folly for anyone to say, well, if God were real, then why doesn't he just come down and reveal himself? Right? He wants us to all know him, does he not? But everything that there is to know about God the Father is there in perfect revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. And we have the testimony of those who were there, which is what the New Testament is. Our folly, really, as humans is this, this idea that we always assume that we are interpreting the information that's presented to us in the right way. Do we not? Psalm 19 is, is, is pretty clear about this. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows his handiwork. So if we don't see him in nature, if we don't recognize God in the natural world, then it's only because sin keeps us from being able to see it properly. That sin is of the same source that causes all of us to have difficulties, that causes all of us to hate our neighbor at times, to lie to steal, to do things like that. You see that all worldviews, whatever it is, whatever way it is that you want to look at the world, they all have mysteries that they must reckon with. That if you ask the question of yourself, why is this like this, enough times, if you drill down and investigate your belief system fully, then you will see that at the very bottom of that, there are certain ideas that just have to be accepted as articles of faith. So there's those, for instance, that insist that everything really that you see in the natural world is just matter in motion, right? I mean, we learn, we go through high school, we learn about biology, we learn, and these are all good things by the providence of God. He's created the natural world. But there are those who say we're essentially made of nothing but imminent matter and that there's nothing really transcendent beyond the physical world. And whatever exists, exists and moves according to some kind of predetermined fashion. And to the degree that you have experiences, perhaps, of making choices in the world, right? Like you go to the grocery store and they say, do you want paper or plastic? I don't know if they even ask that anymore. But you would have to, if you live according to this naturalistic way of thinking about the world, then the only thing that you can come to assume is that I'm having the experience of making choices. Not that I'm actually making them, right? Because everything's determined according to the laws of the physical universe. But these are the same people who, meantime, will lecture you or me or whatever about moral virtues, right? Like the need to be a good person. But what sense does it make, pray tell, to tell someone to be a good person if these choices are all predetermined? More recently, the question is, what's my identity? What, is my, what does it mean for me to be me? What, is, what makes up the core of my identity? What is my identity as a human being? Everyone has their own idea of what, 
what it is to be good, what it is to be a good person, what it means to be human. They assume it, perhaps, even if you can't really explain where it comes from. But the point is that there are always mysteries in every worldview. So much of this is about trying to avoid the presupposition that we are, in fact, created beings, that God has given us a purpose, that he's given us an identity, that he's given us meaning in the sense that we should be those who glorify him and enjoy him forever. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews does here. He consciously presupposes God, as all people did way back then, long before technology convinced us that we're smarter than we really are. The Holy Trinity is a mystery. The Incarnation is a mystery. See, he had no, the author had no problems with mysteries, and neither should we. We accept at the same time that God is sovereign over all events, do we not? But at the same time, we also know that we're responsible for our own choices. Those, things, those two things are both true at the same time and are held together by mystery. So many say that man is the measure of all things. But the author of Hebrews is here to tell us that Christ is the measure of all things. He's the finality of all things. He's the heir of all things. He's the, he's the creator of all things. He was there in the beginning as the second person of the Godhead when all things were created. In verse 2 it says, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. All things were created through him. All things were created by him. All things were created for him. Jesus, as the eternal word, is every bit the author of creation, as is God the Father. The word that shows up here as world, when it says that he created the world, really is more representative of time than it is of matter. So he created all things, but he also stretched, he created the whole timeline. He, he is the governor and the author of human history. This is the bigness of Christ that the author of Hebrews is trying to familiarize us with right here. Christ is the author of history. He's been the heir forever from eternity past by virtue of his position as the eternal son. There was never a time that he was not the heir of all things. He's inheriting something that he himself made. But there is one special inheritance that he receives. And that's you. It's the church. And it was for that inheritance that he came into the world to give his life as a ransom. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He shares the Father's Godness entirely and is distinct from him only in the sense that he's a second person. And I hope you consider later some of the creeds that we've gone through, but in thinking about this, this term radiance, it's not like looking at light coming through the clouds on a sunny day. Well, it is kind of like this. You see the sun, perhaps. You know that the light comes from the sun, but the light that lights up your yard is not the sun itself but it's of the same essence. And it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He created it, he governs it, he sustains it, and he will redeem it. In him we live and move and have our being, as Paul said in his apology on Mars Hill, his defense of the faith. He says that Christ was there authoring the laws of nature that cause his word to be intelligible to mankind. And he alone can take exceptions to them, as he has done in being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
So the pastor who wrote Hebrews wanted his people to intuit from this statement that if Jesus upholds the universe with the word of his power, certainly he can uphold you. The same God who thundered the law from Sinai to their fathers is still moving history forward and is able and willing through Jesus Christ to ensure that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He's the only one that can make that promise, and he's the only one that can live up to it. So the pastors opened, the pastor who wrote Hebrews, has opened with these grand statements which indicate the deity of Christ without pretense, without qualification. He just asserts them. And see, back then, this was not something that the Christians would really have struggled with. It would not have really been a problem for them mentally to think that God appeared to them as a man. It wasn't even necessarily scandalous, this particular idea that God would take human form. In the ancient world, people often ascribed divine attributes to human beings. And you read about this a couple of times in the book of Acts. You see folks fall down and worship the apostles, and the apostles rebuke them and say, Stand up, I'm a man. I'm, I'm just like any of you. And then if you read, go to Acts 12, what happens to King Herod when people say, The voice of a god and not of a man. God strikes him down and he's eaten by worms, it says, because he failed to glorify God. God does this as though to indicate that he is mortal. But to say that deity would, not have, would have not only taken on human form, but to have been born into ordinary human flesh, that was difficult for them to get their minds wrapped around. That was something that they had a really hard time accepting. That was a scandal. You see, the, the deity of Christ is a very important piece of the puzzle, as we have mentioned. But we have to understand also his humanity as well. He cannot be the God-man without being man. How is this possible? Well, on December 25th, Christians all over, each of us will stop in our own way and observe the incarnation event, that singular moment in the course of human history when God took on weakness. The omnipotent God takes on weakness. The infinite God takes on finiteness. The eternal God becomes temporal man. The transcendent becomes imminent. It mystified Christians for centuries. How is this possible? Why would it be possible? Why would God stoop to this level? And Hebrews 2.9, which is the second part of our lesson this morning, says that he was made a little lower than the angels. They were tempted to, to worship angels, saying, well, they seem like transcendent beings, but he says, no, no, Jesus was made lower than them. In other words, he's saying that Jesus was made just like us. He was born just like us. He lived just like us, yet without sin. The reason this was so scandalous to them in that day was because the, the reigning, the regnant, I guess, philosophy was that the material world, there was something really undignified about it. There was something just crass and uh, humiliating and undignified about the idea of carnality, of being of human form, of human flesh, of the body. It's one thing in their minds, they think, for him to say he appears to be human and yet retain all of his godlike properties. But for them in the early centuries, it was a bridge much too far to say that he would actually have anything to do with human substance. 
Never mind the fact that God created the world and declared it to be good, as he, and that he created man and said he was very good. And yet the author of Hebrews goes on in the book to tell us that he did, in fact, take on human nature and flesh. It was not enough for him to just appear to be human. There was a man in the early church, a man named Marcion. He was known as one of the early heretics of the church, and he was one of the ones who suggested that the divine logos, which is kind of theological speak for the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God from eternity past. Marcion says that he would never indignify himself by taking on corruptible human flesh. Why would he subject himself to the unsanitary conditions that would have attended childbirth in those days? And the agony that attended the woman's experience in childbirth. How could God cause his own mother that kind of agony? How on earth was it fitting that God should have to undergo the same process of life that every one of us do? And the answer is this. It was fitting for God to do this because in order for the eternal plan of redemption to work, Christ had to be made like us in every respect, just as he was God in every respect. Answer 16 in the Heidelberg Catechism tells us that he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. And he must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for the sins of others. He was made like us in every respect except for sin. And we tend to focus on his sinlessness as the most necessary part of the equation, but equally as important is the fact that he had to be made like us in every respect. Why? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us later that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, us. In other words, he is able to help you because he has suffered right alongside you. He was born into the same chaotic world that you were born into and live in every day. He was not born into the Garden of Eden like Adam was, into a, a sinless world, a world of ease and comfort. But he was born into a world that had already been plunged into sin and decay. Many of you perhaps have nativity scenes maybe in your home. If not, you've certainly seen one. And the real nativity scene would have been one of utter chaos if you think about it. The Lord of glory was born in a stinky barn with no facilities. He grew up in poverty. He had to go to school. He had to learn how to be obedient to his parents. He had to work a job. He saw the tragedy and the despair of the world that many of us are priv privileged enough not to have to witness to directly. His mission was 30 years long. 
declaring the kingdom of God, doing signs and wonders that testify that the kingdom of God is at hand. He was tempted. He was offered all of the kingdoms of the world, and he turned them all down because he would sooner live sinless only to suffer the greatest injustice ever done to a person at the end of his life so that he could be the one to rescue his people from their sins. Have you ever wondered what it, was, what it would be like to walk around with a person who is sinless? Can you imagine what, that, what, what would that experience be like? What would you gain from that experience? I mean, it's not like he had a gold S, sinless, you know, on his robe as he walked around doing miracles. You know, all, all the folks that were there waiting on a Messiah were waiting on po political deliverance, essentially. I mean, there were, there were folks, sure, who believed in the promise that one day that salvation from sin would come, that we would no longer need to offer these sacrifices all the time. John the Baptist should have known better, but even he had his doubts about the identity of the Messiah. But certainly there was something special about this wandering teacher. Certainly there was something about his countenance that it was that made people go back to their friends and say, I have never seen or heard anything like this man in my whole life. It's amazing. The whole time he never spoke a word that was untrue or unjust or unkind. He never sinned against another person. So that to the degree that he made people angry, it was only because his life was a reflection of everything that they were created to be and weren't. Have you ever had someone tell you, tell you the truth about yourself in a way that made you uncomfortable in the moment because you were forced to confront your shortcomings? Everyone that's married in here should be going, yes. Everybody in here who has, has a parent in the room should be saying, yes. But in my mind, this experience would have been one aspect of being with Jesus. But even then, you have to imagine that he demonstrated the kindness and the mercy of God in a way that is so difficult for every one of us to muster. And if you're a Christian, that you have to imagine that the Father is compassionate in the same way. Because we're told that Jesus, after all, is the exact imprint of his nature. In that 30 years of his life, Jesus learned what it really meant to love people the way that they are. He didn't just appear to be a man. He really lived and died as a man and was resurrected as the first man of glory, as 2.9 in our program tells us, where he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's be clear. I mean, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows, he knows you. He knows everything you've done. He knows everything you will do. He knows what you're, th you know. Uh, Christ came and suffered along with us so that you would know one very important thing, that his love for his people is not abstract. It's not just an idea. It is something he has lived. Christ came and suffered along with us so that we would know that, that we would know a sympathetic, compassionate Christ, that he would know a sympathetic, compassionate love for his people, the kind that you might have for your brother, the kind that you might have for your sister or your child, the kind that comes when you live alongside somebody. That's the message of Emmanuel. That's the Emmanuel principle, God with us. 
He's crowned with glory and honor now, and the promises the same to those who repent of their sin and live and die trusting in him alone for salvation. That is why we worship him alone, because he's with us and he's for us. Why did he have to suffer the injustice of the cross after all? We were just... We were just spoke of him upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus being God, couldn't he just use his goodness to wave his hand and solve the sin problem without having to die on the cross? No, because God is holy, God is just, and a price had to be paid. Without the shedding of blood, as the law tells us, there is no forgiveness of sin. And just like Heidelberg Catechism, the next question says to the question of why Christ had to be truly God so that by the power of his divinity he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life he had to be truly human in order to suffer and sympathize but he had to be truly God so that he could satisfy God's wrath and secure our redemption so that he could affect that cosmic exchange in which we receive his righteousness and he pays for our wickedness. He had to be truly man and truly God because that was the only way that the puzzle of the problem of sin can be unlocked and the question answered, how can sinful man be made right with a holy and just God? The incarnation the incarnation event was necessary because the atonement was necessary. The atonement for sin was necessary. And there was no other way for the sins of God's people to be paid for except for the cross in which he lived sinlessly for 30 years in anticipation of. For Jesus was born to die. That is the scandal of the incarnation. But if you know what his death accomplished for you in a real way that you have faith in, then you realize that that is also the glory of the incarnation. The incarnation of Jesus is act one of the truest and most glorious hero story ever fathomed, one that was written in eternity past by God himself and whose final act will take place when he returns in glory. It's a story we don't deserve any, any role in. But John tells us why he did it, doesn't he? He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray that we might be taken up with the mystery and the glory of the incarnation this season. What a price was paid by this child that we observe who grew to become a man. Lord, you deemed it fitting from all the ages to glorify yourself by showing forth this mystery to us that we might behold the wonder and the awe and the majesty of all that you are and all that you deign for your people and your love for them. And we see it perfectly 
in your revelation of your only Son. Amen.